The Guardian. Hello, this is The Business. I'm Adit Chakraborty. On this week's podcast, it was a decade of decimalisation, three-day weeks and flares. But could something else that was big in the 70s, industrial strategy, be on the verge of a comeback? This uh, perception that picking winners uh, is uh, a bad thing is uh, rooted in the particular historical experience of this country in a particular period. That doesn't mean that uh, it cannot be done. The ultimate exercise in lowering expectations. David Cameron prepares the country for painful cuts ahead. We are now publishing the information about how all your money is spent. We're shining a spotlight on where the waste went. And it is a scandalous sight to see. Plus, as oil continues to gush into the Gulf, who will come off worse, BP or Barack Obama? Even if we are successful in containing uh, some or much of this oil, we are not going to get this problem completely solved until we actually have the relief well completed. And that is going to take a couple more months. The BP oil spill is still either the lead story or one of the two or three lead stories in the news every day. And uh, it looks like it's going to stay that way for the foreseeable future. This is The Business from The Guardian. Welcome. In the studio today, our industrial editor, Tim Webb, columnist Julian Glover, and our guest this week is Harjun Chang from the University of Cambridge. Harjun's written a number of books, most recently Bad Samaritans, and he has a new one on the way, 23 Things That They Don't Tell You About Capitalism. But let's start with the economic policy that time forgot, industrial policy. Decades ago, in a very different Britain, governments used to invest directly in industry and prop up ailing companies. Then came Thatcher and privatisation and free markets. But now, after the crash, industrial policy is back in fashion. First Peter Manson talked about it, and now David Cameron, Vince Cable and George Osborne are too. Harjun, this is your specialist subject. What is industrial policy? Well, the problem with industrial policy is that there is no agreed definition. But I would uh, go for the... A definition which is uh, sometimes called selective industrial policy, that is uh, government deliberately intervening in the different industries uh, to promote certain industries uh, above others. I mean, that this is uh, sometimes known as uh, picking winners. Isn't picking winners meant to be a very bad thing? Well, uh, that's the common perception, but uh, actually that this has succeeded in many countries across the world over the last uh, two, three hundred years. Actually, the people don't know this uh, very well, but uh, the Britain is a country that really started it on the Robert Walpole in the 18th century. And then when the Britain became the world's uh, supreme industrial power, it abandoned industrial policy and adopted the free trade and the free market policies, which uh, then uh, saw it into the, the decline. And then it uh, tried to revive uh, all this uh, in the 60s and 70s, but not very well. But if you look at the other countries, uh, the United States uh, the, took the torch from Britain and in the 19th and 20th century uh, practiced uh, protectionism and industrial policy widely post uh, Second World War industrial success of uh, countries like uh, France, Finland, uh, Norway, South Korea, Japan, all owe to picking winners. So the, this uh, perception that picking winners uh, the, is uh, the, a bad thing is uh, rooted in the particular the historical experience of this country in a particular period, the 60s and 70s. 
that doesn't mean that uh, it cannot be done. Tim Webb, our industrial editor, do you think industrial strategy really is back in fashion? Well, certainly it was before the election and uh, when Labour were in power. Um, whether it will be as uh, active and industrial as under the new administration remains to be seen. And the government's already uh, announced they're reviewing a whole package of grants and loans that the government had promised companies like Sheffield Forge Masters, a, a nuclear manufacturing firm, the car industry. Um, and we won't know for a month or so whether actually this money will be forthcoming. And when we talk about industrial activism, governments want to stress that it's not just about money but but you know the bottom line is often it is that's it's grants it's subs it's it's subsidies effectively and if a company can't get a, a grant in this country to set up a factory then if that same grant uh, is on offer in france or germany or the us then they'll go elsewhere so you know with and with the economic um state of the uh the economy um whether the government is in a position to offer this money then uh um, and really kickstart things. I'm not sure. And, and of course, now the eurozone is really struggling. We've, we've, that was, that was, that's who we'll be exporting to. So um, we've kind of um, coming a bit late to the whole industrial activism party, unfortunately. And even if it does get off the ground, then um, you know, not European countries, our main, uh, our main um, market, aren't really uh, don't have much money to buy stuff at the moment. Julian or Young Glover from the Guardian, as the new statesman calls you this week. Uh, your column w- this week was all about uh, a walking tour of Sheffield. Field and you went to see some of the companies that were apparently supported by by the government what did you find well if you go to sheffield forge masters you see a very successful company which makes not just nuclear parts so that's one of the things it makes it makes huge forgings which are exported around the world largely not sold in britain anymore because there isn't much demand for those things it makes things like drive shafts for ships for navies the french aircraft carrier uses a, a piece of british steel in it and what the company wants to do is to get bigger now, it faces the dilemma that many medium-sized companies do. If they want to get bigger, they need a lot of money to bet on a really big piece of manufacturing equipment, a huge 15,000-ton press. can raise some of the money on the city. They could sell the company to a giant firm, probably not a British one, which would then have the cash to put it in. Or they can go to the government and get some of it from the government and match that with private money, which is what they want. Now, they're waiting to see if they'll get this cash. I think they're an unusual example of a company that has a very good case for a very medium-sized amount of money, £80 million. It's not nothing, but it's not huge, which will deliver jobs probably if if the demand for nuclear power plants around the world continues, as they predict, will succeed. A lot of the difficulty of industrial strategy is that the government doesn't have that much money. It puts in relatively small amounts of money, quite often into places which have political um, benefits. If you look at where the cash is going, it's quite often to marginal seats, not only, but sometimes. And it isn't really clear what you get from that. I also think it's, it, it's untrue to say industrial strategy in Britain has been out of fashion. It was only around in the 60s and 70s. We did have a few good examples in the 70s. The Tory government nationalised Rolls-Royce jet engines, which went bust in 1971, which is now one of Britain's leading manufacturing companies. One of the big British manufacturing sectors is pharmaceuticals, which has been looked after by government all the way through the years, often covertly. So the NHS pays over the market odds for drug prices in return for having a lot of manufacturing and R&D in Britain. And that, that has lasted through all governments. Um, Michael Heseltine said he would intervene before breakfast, before lunch and before dinner. Now, he wasn't typical of all Tories in the 80s, but in the 80s we had a lot of money going into foreign investment, into the car industry and to high-tech manufacturing in Britain. So the government in the 80s did put a lot of cash into industry, and it didn't always work. We saw a lot of the silicon chip manufacturing plants not last very long. So that comes to the question, is this money generating a return? What Vince Cable said in the speech he gave the other day, which didn't get as much coverage as it should have done because Sky TV destroyed the tape by accident, so 
<laughs> nobody could put it onto television and people didn't report it. But, but what, what he was trying to argue was not that government should be standing back, but the government should be creating the conditions in which companies can then make their own decisions to grow. So it wants to encourage the skills base. Now, that's all very well, but if you're Sheffield Forge Masters and you're sitting there in Sheffield and you're saying, do we do it or don't we do it? You need an answer, and you don't need a skills base. You just need the cash, and they can't get it from the city, and that's the real problem. Mm. Harjun, Julian's raised uh, there a couple of big criticisms of you and your industrial policy malarkey. One is it's money that's pumped in by the government, and mm-hmm. it's ne- not quite clear what, what we get back from it. And two, it's a transfer from all taxpayers into particular businesses. Is that really fair? Well, the no one uh, always uh, make the right decision. I mean, even the most successful companies. I mean, I can think of a couple of examples. I mean, uh, the Windows Vista with uh, Microsoft, you know, the game console slash uh, mobile phone called Engage at, uh, from Nokia, which uh, you haven't even probably heard of, but that uh, was a big thing for Nokia five years ago, and it uh, that completely disappeared. So, I mean, uh, uh, yes, I uh, agree that uh, the, the record, especially in this country of industrial policy, hasn't been that uh, very good, but the mere fact that uh, it sometimes doesn't work uh, doesn't mean that you shouldn't try. I mean, uh, you should, you know, I mean, even the best uh, cricket players uh, doesn't make a hit every time. I mean, uh, we are talking about batting average here. So we have to discuss uh, how to raise that uh, batting average. But I think uh, Julian uh, put uh, his finger on the most important problem in this country. That is uh, the absence of uh, patient capital. You know, for example, that uh, when Nokia, that which started out as a logging company, moved into the electronics business in 1960, it lost money in that business for 17 years. Hmm? But uh, it could uh, uh, make a Nokia world-class company only because it could uh, uh, mobilize uh, uh, internal subsidies. I mean, I just think I think the government, um, before Manderson started talking about industrial activism last year, we've been quite naive uh, expecting the rest of the world to play by this free market rule that, that we were playing by and um, saying that we're not going to distort the market, we're not going to offer subsidies and grants, etc. But I think Sir John Rose, the chief executive of Rolls-Royce, points out, and he's no, uh, you know, he's a free marketeer, he's not, not um, a fan of big government, but the point he makes, and it's a very important point, is that if... Other governments elsewhere around the world are already distorting markets by offering um, uh, grants and subsidies, etc. Then, then the market's already distorted. So, if we just sit up, you know, shut up, shut up shop, and, and not do anything ourselves, then we're, we're going to lose out. So, you kind of have to join in the game as well. That's certainly true, and I, I think it's wrong to see this as a, a just a left-right argument, in which the left is wanting a great industrial activist strategy, and the right is saying, "Hey, just go out and trade and, and go hang." Um, I mean, a lot of the early part of the Labour government, most of the Labour government, Ed Bulls and Gordon Brown, were amongst the leading people who didn't see manufacturing as the thing to be talking about, as the thing to be fiddling with and investing in. Peter Mandelson, when he, in his first incarnation as business secretary, sadly didn't last very long, um, was actually beginning to do some of that conversation then and then did it when he came back the second time. So he's been different. It's, okay, it's not a new, and it's, so it's not even a new Labour versus old Labour thing. I mean, Ed Bulls should hang his head in shame because he was the city minister who really didn't find this interesting. Okay, but... But briefly, tell us what you think the new government's view on industrial strategy really is. I think they well, they want successful big companies employing lots of people. Uh, how do you get there? They've got a slightly different view. They don't think that giving small amounts of money to lots of individual companies is going to produce long-term results, and they're almost certainly right about that. Um, they also are pretty suspicious of a lot of money handed out by Mandelson at the last minute. Um, they do like manufacturing. They aren't addicted to the city. They aren't about to stop government being 
hugely involved in big business. There are companies like JCB, a successful British manufacturing you company, which are, which are highly close to the Conservative Party, mm. but, but it's a company, amazing history, uh, uh, coming out of post-war Britain. One thing they do want is to look at the future, and there's a huge danger of political sentiment and pressure wanting to save manufacturing or save an industry which was big and is now in decline. Much harder for government to grow the new big businesses, but that you know, is what all politicians would want to do. But just on a political point, which is mm. Julian's uh, speciality, not so much mine, but, but clearly this will be a test for the new government because if they are trying to broaden out beyond the core Tory support, the heartlands of the home counties, southeast, which obviously are not manufacturing heartlands, we're talking about the yes. northeast, the Midlands, which traditionally haven't supported the Conservatives. So, you know, this would be a big test for uh, the new Conservatives. Are they really modern and new? And, and I mean, it's obviously a great opportunity for Cameron to um, some solidify support in these areas where traditionally they haven't been strong. And it's uh, not just a matter of uh, ideology. I mean, the, this country needs uh, uh, the revival in manufacturing. I mean, the financial industry, which has been the, the main the export industry of this country, the, is going to shrink uh, the, whether or not you like it. I mean, the, due to increased regulation and uh, everything. The no COE revenues are going to fall. So where are you going to find the money to uh, finance your imports? I mean, so far you have been able to do it. I mean, this country has been running manufacturing trade deficit equivalent to about uh, 4% of GDP. And uh, this country's service export is just about that. But when that falls, together with uh, no COE revenue, you will have to find uh, alternative sources export. Or, or, or live lower standards of, of living. It, oh, yeah, it, of it is true. <laughs> I mean, don't forget, Britain is a manufacturing country still, and it's sometimes the subject's treated as though we no longer make anything at all. I mean, it is a big sector. It's not as big as it was. It's pretty small in some areas of manufacturing, um, much bigger in others. We are, by some measures, the sixth biggest manufacturing country in the world. Yes, uh, but uh, that's uh, only largely because uh, you have a fairly big population. If you look at the uh, manufacturing output per yeah. capita, mm. it's yeah. only about the 20th in the world. Yeah. So, I mean, that yeah. uh, you have to... But there is potential to work on. It is, oh, yeah, it's, it's, of course. I mean, that uh, I, I was very impressed by your article about Forge Masters. And, I mean, there is uh, still that... Uh, a strong underlying capability, but that capability has been really weakened. I mean, this country mm. has seen the value of uh, its currency falling by 25-30% over the last year and a half. And, and it hasn't yes. yeah, that generated export led, boom. led to lots of foreign takeovers, and that goes back to the sentiment. We had a huge fuss in Britain about chocolate, because Cadbury's makes chocolate, and so we worried about Cadbury's. People aren't making a fuss about chloride, which exactly, is, you know, yeah. which because which, it doesn't do something sweet. Okay, let's leave that there, and you can follow more on this at guardian.co.uk forward slash business. World Cup, World Cup, every four years it's the World Cup, World Cup. If you dump a cup of grunge in the build-up, build then we'll love it when you score a goal. Ooh, did you see that? World Cup, World Cup. It might all end in tears or a headbutt. Head you can follow all the blogging on your laptop. laptop. From Slovenia to Slovakia, from Nigeria to the Côte d'Ivoire. Ah, Côte d'Ivoire. The Guardian and Observer, packed with World Cup coverage every day. This is The Business, with Aditya Chakraborty. David Cameron has warned Britain that there are painful times ahead. The PM says the country will experience a terrible, terrible waste of money in the next five years as interest on the nation's debt rises to £70 billion a year, more than the combined budgets for education, climate change and transport. His warning is part of the government's preparations for its emergency post-election budget on the 22nd of June. Around the world, people and their governments are waking up to the dangers of not dealing with their debts. And Britain has got to be part of that international mainstream as well. A steady, painful erosion of confidence in our economy. Because today, almost every major country in the world 
is focusing on the need to cut their deficits. And the G20 has called on those countries with the biggest deficits to accelerate their plans for reducing them. If in Britain, investors saw no will at the top of government to get a grip on our public finances, they would doubt Britain's ability to pay its way. Even more worrying is the example of Greece, a sudden loss of confidence and a sharp increase in interest rates. Now, let me be clear. Our debts are not as bad as Greece. Our underlying economic position is much stronger than Greece's. And crucially, we now have a government that I would argue has already demonstrated its willingness and its ability to deal with the problem. But Greece stands as a warning of what happens to countries that lose their credibility or whose governments pretend that difficult decisions can somehow be avoided. Today, we're all paying the price because the size of the public sector has got way out of step with the size of the private sector. We're going to have to try and get it back in line, and that will be much more painful than if we'd kept things properly in balance all along. OK, that's the Prime Minister talking. Harjun, you're the economist. What do you make of that? Well, I think, uh, first of all, there's the danger that uh, these costs might be made uh, too much uh, too early, that uh, it uh, reverses uh, the recovery. But I think uh, what uh, is uh, more necessary uh, to talk about is, you know, uh, there's one uh, obvious way to reduce uh, deficit, which is uh, to cut spending. But uh, there's a uh, better and even more sustainable way to reduce deficit, which is uh, to increase revenue. And actually, a lot of uh, the deficit in this country is due to falling revenue rather than the spending getting out of control. Julian, whose side do you take, David Cameron or Harjun Chang? I certainly think David Cameron's right. I, I, I think for a start, it, the country did face a choice at the election. It could have voted for a Labour government that didn't really want to do this, although it would have done much of this. And the figures Cameron used in his speech were, as Alistair Darling pointed out, Alistair Darling's figures. Uh, it, it, it is a choice as to what kind of view you take of the state. And this is why David Cameron is doing a speech on that. And Osborne's trying to talk about the state. It's not just a consequence of some immediate market panic. It is, it is a deeper and longer term view of the sort of nature of government in Britain. And I think that that's the political choice. Mm-hmm. And it's one where there's a legitimate argument on both sides. But you kind of have to decide where you stand. I think Greece has changed a lot. I mean, I know Cameron is probably very glad to make comparisons uh, between the UK and Greece, or holding up Greece as an example of what happens if, you do, if a government doesn't pay its debts and allows its um, deficit to keep on building up. And I know that there are clearly huge differences between the two countries. The UK's debt is a lot more long term, etc. But I think the timing of the kind of the eruption of the Greek crisis it happened, I think, the day after the election, and and. Um, the whole debate, should we cut um, early or, 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 or should we delay it, as, as Labour and uh, Labour supporters were arguing? I think Greece really has just shifted that debate now. And the, the, the voices for saying we should hold off, really, um, you don't hear them so much now. And I think, you know, I think Labour's um, economic record, you know, Liam Byrne leaving a note for his uh, successor at the Treasury saying, I'm sorry, I've spent all the money. And you know, he said it was a joke and maybe I, I, I lack a sense of humour. But I think most people are actually quite worried by that. And so whenever you see, certainly whenever I see Liam Byrne on the TV now, and I just really, he's discredited in my eyes. I mean, why should I really pay too much attention to what he's saying? Um, and and um, so I think I think people seem to accept now that more you know, spending has got too much out of control. I mean, 
why give winter fuel payments to middle class people, millionaires? Why why should an, uh, someone who's sixty five, who's you know got a huge pension, should they? Why should they get a, a rebate on their winter fuel payments? I think the the, the kind of benefits of the middle class really. Um, that's an example of the state getting too big. Harjun, in Cambridge, in other economics faculties, do you think most economists think like you, or do you think they tend to think actually we need to cut spending pretty sharply? Oh, it uh, is divided. I mean, the, the How people. Because Julian's making the point that most politicians now kind of think that we, we need to cut spending. Oh, probably in the academia, the, the, there are more people agreeing with, the, the, if you like, uh, Keynesian thinking, who the, so they, think they uh, premature and uh, too large a cut that would be dangerous. And uh, this is uh, something even Martin Ulf uh, said in his uh, podcast in the Financial Times. So it's uh, not a particularly lefty kind of point of view. I mean, it's a matter of you know, the judgment. Julian, oh, well, last I, word. I, I agree that we had an unsustainable level of government spending based on a financial services sector, which, as you said earlier, is not going to recover um, in to the thing it was before. And that's precisely why we have to spend less money. In the long run, uh, there is no question that this uh, deficit had to be cut. But like in the old things, I mean, the, the details, the devil's in the details. Huh? Yeah. So I, 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 where I, I, and the, the, exactly the, how you cut, I mean, if you create that uh, political anger by that, uh, and that's making precise. costs uh, that are seen as uh, unfair by the population, whether rightly or wrongly, then you are going to uh, get uh, I, 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 make the situation even worse. We agree, and that's precisely yeah. why the government is trying to start this conversation, rather than simply having a budget and a spending review where somebody stands up at the dispatch box and just announces it. Mm-mm. I mean, it, you might not like it, you might not no, like no, no, the consequences. I mean, the, the, they should I, have the debate, but uh, what I see as missing is uh, this... Uh, bigger question about that, that, that political philosophy that, that, that you just talked about, also the bigger question about the financial reform and so on, unless uh, all these are the commonly addressed. I mean, the, yeah. yes, I mean, we can pick on, you know, that the rich pensioners are getting bus passes, but I mean, the, that's uh, a marginal issue in my view. It is, but we can't guarantee the city's going to boom again and pay all the bills. And if no, it no, doesn't... It's won. not a marginal it, issue, though. I just uh, have to say, not that the bus passes, but the... the but there you go. That's it's my final of, word. A couple, couple of billion quid a year. <laughs> <laughs> OK, and for everything you need to know about the upcoming budget, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash politics. This is The Business from The Guardian. The White House is warning BP that it's facing fines totaling many billions of dollars. Those penalties will easily dwarf the cost of the current cleanup operation. The gusture in the Gulf of Mexico continues to exceed the administration's and BP's worst-case scenarios for an oil spill. The final tab for the fines would be determined by the volume of oil polluting the Gulf. Let's get the view from the States now. Our columnist in the US, Michael Tomaski. There was a poll out in the United States Monday uh, that showed, I believe for the first time, uh, that people now took a more negative view of how the federal government is handling this matter than how the federal government under George Bush handled the Katrina hurricane catastrophe. This is a a story that could just become the image uh, of this administration, really, in some ways. That's, That's the big danger. This will be contained. It may take some time, and it's going to take a whole lot of effort. There's going to be damage done to the Gulf Coast. And there's going to be economic damages that we've got to make sure BP uh, is responsible for and uh, compensates people for. Congress is discussing this issue of the liability cap, which I'm sure many people listening to this have heard about. Uh, Under current existing law, 
there's a liability cap for oil companies in this kind of situation of $75 million. Uh, it's very clear that this is going to run over $75 million if it hasn't already. Uh, there's an effort in Congress among some to raise that liability cap to $10 billion. Uh, Republicans are largely against it. Um, because that's just on principle the kind of thing Republicans are against. Uh, most Democrats are for it. Not all Democrats yet are are for are for it. They're, I mean, they're certainly for doing something to 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 raise the liability and to make sure that BP has to pay for this. The most immediate threat that BP faces is uh, that they're going to be you know liable for so much damages that uh, that you know they might not even be able to cover it. The president and his people just moved too slowly on this. Uh, they really needed to be out there in the first couple of weeks, not solving the problem, because I think people understand that it's a complicated problem that they didn't create. But more important than those things, you have to show that you're doing something, that you're trying something. Uh, you know, you have to put on a public face. Uh, it's not so much being the emoter in chief as being the explainer in chief and telling people what the situation is and what you're trying to do and giving them updates on that just so they have a feeling that somebody is in charge. You know, that, uh, that toothpaste is out of the tube, as they say, and uh, a lot of that damage uh, has been done and is very difficult to correct at this point. There's one little example. <clears throat> There's this Coast Guard Admiral Thad Allen who has now uh, taken the lead uh, at the administration's press briefings on this situation. In their first full 24-hour cycle, they were able to bring up and produce 6,000 uh, barrels of oil from the well. So what we're trying to do is minimize the amount of leakage. Ultimately, when we go to full production, it comes out and is forced down around those rubber seals. Well, he's a very commanding presence. He's a big kind of burly guy and he's up there in a very crisp uniform and he's got all the hardware on his chest that, that signals to people, you know, man of accomplishment and, uh, and authority. Well, why is it just now that he's the one that they're putting out there in front? You know, he's, he's like the Norman Schwarzkopf of this thing, and he, and he probably should have been out there from the very beginning. You know, it's not really that the administration hasn't been doing things. They have been doing things from the beginning. Uh, they just haven't communicated what they've been doing. Some of that can be repaired. Uh, some of that damage is done irreparably. Michael Tomaski there with a view from Washington. Tim Webb, let's go to you first. What Michael seems to be counselling there in his very polite, liberal way is that the government ought to go, the White House ought to go hard on BP. Just how big is the political sort of existential threat facing Tony Hayward and BP now? Well, before we, maybe if, if I may come on to that, I mean, the point that Michael raises about Obama's reaction, I mean, Obama finds himself in a very difficult situation and, and other governments who, who have oil companies doing equally challenging, uh, difficult drilling in, in remote and environmentally sensitive areas will, will be asking themselves the same questions. So on the one hand, Obama uh, uh, and the US government is rightly um Say, say, sticking their their boot on on BP's neck, and 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 really now they're talking talking very tough and threatening maybe a criminal investigation. But at the same time, they have to rely on BP to try and fix the leak because they don't have the technology themselves to 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 to, to plug it. So um, on the one hand, they're they're, they're kicking them, uh, and on the other hand, they're relying on them. So it, it, it's difficult, and there seems to be quite a schizophrenic attitude politically in America towards big oil that. 
uh, attitudes uh, it's, it's, it reminds me a little bit of um, uh, politicians uh, recently um, voting against financial regulation of, of, of the banks seeing that uh, arguing that that was an example of big government and an infringement of democratic values and there's similar um, mixed views about oil that on the one hand it's American oil it's our oil we should drill it you know be- drill baby drill as, as Sarah Palin said on the other hand they want someone to blame because when it goes wrong as, as we've seen in the Gulf then um, you know oil's not so uh, oil companies are not so popular um, so it's it, it's it's tricky I mean Tony Hayward will he survive I mean to be honest I think the questions move beyond that um, we can talk there are various different estimates of how much it will cost the company certainly it'll be tens of billions of dollars um, the reality is no one knows um, I think maybe Michael was right to say that, that the government was relying too much on or was seen to be relying too much on BP uh, in the early stages of, of this disaster and, and th- the fact is they continue to rely on BP but now they're just talking a bit tougher And how seriously do you take their talk? I mean Barack Obama's now saying that he would fire Tony Hayward if he were given a chance Well that may be the case, but that's not going to fix the leak. So, I mean, I think it's that's really irrelevant. Um, um, I mean, Hayward said when, when I interviewed him last month, well, the, there is a difference between pl- the political rhetoric in Washington and, and what's happening on the ground, and and that will remain the case. So, um, I mean, Matt Fry, what, at the time of Hurricane Katrina, I remember him saying, um, if, if and if I remember this rightly, and apologies to Matt Fry if I, if I don't, but he said if September 11th changed the way uh, America viewed the world. Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina changed the way the world viewed America in that they weren't looking after their own poor, etc. I'm not quite sure what the Deepwater Horizon disaster is going to be. Certainly, it's changed the way the world views the oil industry. How culpable Obama is in that, um, I'm not sure. I don't think it's going to... St- I'm, I don't live in America, but I, I can't really see how Obama is going to carry the can just because he didn't put a big burly Thad Allen in front of the camera, you know, a few weeks ago rather than just now. I mean, that, if that's how politics is decided, then, um, well. Julian, what would, a, what would a British government do if it were faced with such a natural disaster? It would panic too. <laughs> it would hope in the way that has happened with all disasters before, not all, that it goes away that it looks awful on TV for a couple of years and then suddenly it doesn't turn out to be such a big crisis. We, we in, I mean, the, the example of British res- insane British political response was the Torrey Canyon, um, a terrible disaster in the 1970s, I think, when a, when a tanker hit the southwest coast. In the end, the government ordered the RAF to try and bomb the ship um, in the hope that this would break it up and get the oil out. I mean, that was completely mad too, but government had to be seen to do something. We had a recent case in, 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 in Shetland when we had a, 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 another ship that began leaking. A couple of years later, the problem seemed to have vanished. Now, this is on a magnitude far, far beyond those, and the problem is not about to vanish. The government would be sitting there desperately trying to do something on television that would look good. I do think there's one issue that we're a bit embarrassed about in Britain talking about is the impact of this on Britain. Um, BP is not only a British company, but it's partly a British company. Um, It has a lot of um, value on the British stock market. It pays money into the British Treasury um, to fund all those good spending projects we need to keep going. It's one of the things that isn't the city. If this company gets done over by America, by its own incompetence, it will hurt this country. Now, how we respond to that, I'm not quite sure. What the British government's response should be, I'm not quite clear. But one thing we do know about Obama is he really doesn't like the UK, and so he is quite happy to pick on a British company. I have to say, it makes the game England against USA on Saturday even more, more tasty, I think, with all this backdrop. Before we go, let's move from one giant British company to another one. Uh, Tim, 
we heard on Tuesday that uh, Terry Leahy is going to step down as head of Tesco's uh, after what over a decade in charge of the company and having seen fourteen it, years, fourteen years longer than Arsene Wenger has been at Arsenal. <laughs> um, how big a deal is that? Well, he's a, he's a real stalwart, um, you know, city stalwart. He he really. Um, I mean, I, think, I can't remember who said all politics ends in failure, but actually, you know, he's he's standing down, not in the backdrop of any scandal or, or the, the company being broken up, but you know, he's 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 packing his bags and he's done a good job. I mean, the share price reaction told told the whole story. I think I think it was, Tesco is one of the biggest fallers on the uh, on the market this morning after the company made the announcement that he was standing down. Any idea why he's going? Uh, I think I think really just time for a, a new face. Fourteen years is quite a long time. That the his successor is is, is is someone from within the company. So they've obviously you know it's obviously a planned succession. It, it's not a knee jerk reaction. Um, I think it's just genuine. You know, what's he's, he going to do next? I put him in charge question. of the NHS. He'll be in char- he'll be in <laughs> well, maybe George Osborne schools. will be giving him a call and he can <laughs> start. Great. We should just give the, give the uh, chief executive of the NHS. He'll be in charge of academy schools. But the thing is, would have to, he'd open too many of them, wouldn't he? You'd have an <laughs> NHS in it around on every street corner. <laughs> In the age of austerity, I think we need to retrench, not expand. <laughs> and they would sell flat screen tellies as well. Um, Harjun, it's very rare for a chief executive to stay in charge of any big company for 14 years. I think the average term now is, what, four and a half years. Mm. How much difference does it make having a big manager in charge of a big business? Well, I, I think it uh, really depends on the case. But uh, in general, I mean, if you want to build uh, a world-class company, you need uh, stable management. So uh, even if it's uh, not the same individual, I mean, it has to be the same, same team. Yeah. So people can come up from below. But I mean, it's uh, uh, better to have uh, the same team running it rather than companies being you know, bought and sold uh, as if uh, we buy, I don't know, houses or football teams. OK, that's it for this week. My thanks to our PAC studio, Guardian Experts, Julian Glover. Tim Webb, Michael Tomaski too over in Washington and our special guest Harjun Chang. Don't forget to add your voice to our debate at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. This podcast was produced by Andy Duckworth. I'm Adit Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.